Um, if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. This is, um, this is what David writes. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. What's in a name? You know, there's an episode of The Simpsons aired back in 1997 uh, where the school principal, 1997, let's like, you guys were like, like, like not, some of you guys not not born? Okay, all right. (laughs) Thanks. Well, where the school principal, Seymour Skinner, reveals that he has been an imposter the entire time, and he immediately retires. Uh, but despite the fact that he lied about who he was, Lisa, you guys know who Lisa is? She's like the sister, okay, has spiky hair. Lisa tells her brother, his name doesn't matter. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, to which Bart says, not if you call them stench blossoms. What's in a name? What is in a name? Maybe you haven't thought about your name much or the etymology of your name, um, or maybe one of the reasons why middle school was kind of lame for you uh, was that beca- was because people called you uh, by a certain kind of name that you didn't like or wasn't your preference. Um, and it was a name that you ended up carrying with you to the end of middle school and maybe even stuck with you as you entered high school. Uh, like, for example, uh, back when I was a student in, in seminary, uh, I heard this hilarious story of when some of my pastor friends and acquaintances were still students at the seminary uh, before me. And back then, the majority of the master seminary uh, was mainly white people. Um, and uh, there were some Hispanics, some blacks, and very few Asians. But at the time, uh, since there were so few Asian students, the professors, for whatever reason, didn't remember any of their names, except for this one Asian student named Tranway. Okay? Uh, I, I don't know why they remembered only Tranway's name, maybe because it's really unique, unlike J- John or Jacob. And because all the professors only remember Tran- Tranway's name, uh, eventually all the Asian students were named Tranway. <laughs> so when one of the uh, professors had an Asian student, not Tranway, but an Asian student in their class, no matter who it was, regardless of what n- their name actually was, their name was Tranway. And, and this happened so often that the running joke was that eventually all the Asian people were called Tranway 1, Tranway 2, Tranway 3, uh, long after Tranway had finally graduated. But the reason why it was kind of funny was actually because it was actually low-key kind of messed up. Uh, Tranway is just, you know, they, 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 I mean, I don't know, I can't assume, but for them maybe, Tranway is just any name of any Asian guy that rolls around the Master Seminary. Uh, we don't have a distinctive and individual identity. We are Tranway. Um, names are important because names are an extension of who we are. Names are an extension of who we are. Names not only refer to us, but they also describe and define us. Uh, In the Bible, a person's given name in many ways was their destiny. Sometimes a person's name was an extension of their character. Someone's name is shorthand for who they are. But but more than that, knowing, knowing someone's name was indicative of your relationship with them. 
You see, for the professors, they called these Asian students Tranway because they didn't actually have a relationship with them, much less Tranway himself. I mean, how could they? How close can, can you actually be with someone if you don't actually know their name? And this is how Psalm 8 confronts us. God has a name, and he knows your name. And the million-dollar question for you this evening is, do you know his name? Do you know his name? Do you know his personal name? In other words, do you know him personally? If, if a person's name is an extension of who they are, do you know God personally? If you were carefully listening to the reading of Psalm 8 earlier, you'll have noticed that the first half of verse 1 and verse 9 are exactly the same. Take a look briefly at those, those two verses really quickly. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A repetition. Now, why do they repeat? That's a question. When the beginning and ending of a psalm mirror like this, that's what's called an inclusio. An inclusio. I'll write it down. Thankfully, I have a, a pen. Inclusio, okay? So... I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O, inclusio. And uh, inclusio is pretty much where David is bracketing the opening and closing of chapter 8. Okay, it's bookended by both verse 1 and verse 9. Okay, by doing this, David is actually drawing our attention to how the outside of Psalm 8 shapes how we understand the inside of Psalm 8. Okay? And what David is drawing our attention to here is that knowing who God is is actually central to knowing who we are. If verses 1 and 9 are actually about God, and verses 2 to 8 are about man, then knowing who God is is actually, in fact, central to knowing who we are. In fact, John Calvin wrote that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. Similarly, A.W. Tozer uh, famously wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There's something instructive and praiseworthy about God's name that not only reveals who he is, but also reveals who we are. And so the key idea for our passage for this evening is that we praise God's name because his name reveals who he is and who we are. We praise God's name because his name reveals who he is and who we are. So the first point is we, we praise God's name because his name reveals who he is. Take a look, a brief look at the subscript real quick. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. Now you might ask, why is this subscript here? It's because this actually isn't just some throwaway title. It is actually part of the inspired words of God. Okay, so this title that we just read is actually the inscripturated words, words of God that also gives us some brief context about the passage itself. The fact that it is written to the choir master tells us that Psalm 8 is actually meant to be read and sung corporately, and it also tells us that it is a song of David, okay? So that's going to be important for us to reorient our understanding of Psalm 8. Now, we aren't given too many details on when he wrote it, but I think the passage gives us some details on where and the time of day that he wrote it. And what we're about to do, actually, is to eavesdrop into the divine diary of a man whom, whom God called a man after his own heart. And what that means for you and me is that David thinks about life and God the way that we're supposed to, okay? This is what, we, this is what makes him worth listening to. Take a look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory 
above the heavens. And that brings us to actually our first sub-point is that a God who is gloriously personal. What we see in this passage is first a God who is gloriously personal. Now, most, of, most if not all of your Bibles in verse 1 will have Lord capitalized. You guys see that in your Bibles? Verse 1. Anyone have a clue why it's capitalized? No? Okay. No one? Okay, great. That's why this passage is just for you, okay? Um, anytime you see Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, good try though, James. Uh, anytime you, you, you see the Lord uh, capitalized in the Old Testament, that's the way our English Bibles have translated God's personal and intimate name, Yahweh. Okay? So anytime you see L-O-R-D capitalized in your Bibles in the Old Testament, that is actually God's shorthand name for his personal name, Yahweh. The word Yahweh is, is the shorthand phrase, um, is shorthand for the phrase, I am what I am. I am who I am. Meaning that God exists eternally and entirely on his own and, 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 and is completely independent from his creation. Okay? And I think for most of us listening to this, there is a slight disconnect as we're thinking about that. There doesn't seem to be anything about God's personal and intimate name that sounds intimate or personal at all. And for some of you, that's probably exactly how you would describe God to others or your friends. Like, I forget who I was talking with um, about this, but the person that I was talking with said that uh, one of the hardest parts about Christianity uh, is worshiping a God whom I can't see. Uh, A God who exists entirely on his own and completely independent from from his creation is exactly the way that I would describe God in my life. God might be powerful. He may be uh, mighty, but he is cold and distant, it seems to us. I ask, for, I ask God for help, but it seems like he just, I just never get his help. God seems far removed, not close by. Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you or is just absent from your life when you needed him the most? How is the covenant and personal name Yahweh offered to the people of Israel any comfort at all? It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And to answer that question, we have to remember that the occasion and the backdrop for how his name is first introduced. The first time God's personal name is introduced is when God hears the cries and sees the affliction that has been brought upon his people in Egypt. You guys remember that? Exodus 3. And it is in the context of his people's suffering, their their, their worries, their trials, and their doubts, that God's name is in fact introduced. Okay? So turn to, actually, I want you guys to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Verses 19 to 15. Exodus chapter 3, verses 9 to to 15. Exodus chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. And I'm going to read it for us. Exodus chapter 9, verses 9 to 15. uh, Chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then God said to then, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is this name? What shall I say to them? Bless you. God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. And it's in this context of shame, fear, oppression, doubt, suffering, pain, that God shares his personal name. But when God greets and meets and shares his name with Moses, when he says, I am who I am, what we have to recognize is that God wasn't so much describing his essence so much as his presence. God wasn't so much describing his essence as his presence. In giving Moses his name, God was pledging to his people that he would be the constant divine presence in their lives. And that proved to be true as the, as the Israelites wandered through the wilderness and into the promised land. God was before them. God was behind them. God was beside them. He was in the pillar of fire. God was their abiding presence. And you know, that sounds great for Moses and even for David, but what about us? Like people like 4,000 years, 5,000 years removed from that. How do we know that God's constant and divine presence will be with us? Bless you. What's well, literally written in the skies. Take a look at verse one again of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. If the name of God is an extension of God himself, where does God choose to place his name? In all the earth, above the heavens. And where God chooses to place his name, whether in the land, in the temple, on his people, it is also where God is as well. So if God's name is in all the earth and his glory is above the heavens, then it means that the entire creation reveals the personal and intimate creator who created all things in the palm of his hand. In fact, John Calvin wrote that the whole world and everything in it is the theater of God's glory. The entire creation is the stage upon which the glory of God and the glory of his presence is revealed and shown. So how can we not say that we can't see God or that God is not near us if God has set his name in the heavens and in the earth? Which is what makes his name so surprising, is it not? The infinite and glorious God is also at the same time the intimate and deeply personal God who reveals himself to you. It's as if God created the entire cosmos for the very purpose to tell you and to declare to you that he is with you. Out of all the people, out of all people, Christians are to be the ones who are most attuned to the glorious presence of God in everything, in absolutely, in everything, in all facets of life. So let me ask you a question. Where is God in your life? He's everywhere. But uniquely as his people, he is with you everywhere. It's the reason why I am with you is the central promise of the entire Bible. I am with you. You see, the promise of God's name, Yahweh, I am who I am. I will be what I will be, is that he will be all that you need for him to be right now for you. That is the presence, the promise of his name. God is our present help. 
The promise of God's name is also that he will be all that you need him to be in the future when your future is not so certain. When God wants us to know him, he doesn't give us a tidy book to his people called Knowing God by J.A. Packer, even though that's a great book, to know God's personal presence better. He doesn't do that. Instead, God invites us to listen to him, to hold on to his promises, and to walk with him on a lifelong road that is often less than tidy and neat. I am with you when you lose your friends and when they abandon you. I am with you when you break your leg and you're out for the season. I am with you as you start the new school year. I am with you when you can't fall asleep at night. I am with you when you don't know if you'll get into the schools that you want to get into. I am with you when you fail a test. All of that, all of that in a name. The promise of God's name is a promise of God's presence. And it's a promise for those who are willing to listen. A promise who are willing to listen. Secondly, that brings us to secondly, a God who defies expectation. A God who defies expectation. Take a look at verse 2. Out of mouth Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now what David is saying is that it is through the weakness and frailty of babies and little children that God's strength is established. Now the last time I checked, kids aren't the most dependable group of people to ask for help. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was uh, was picking something up from, from Smart and Final for groceries and uh, I, I saw um, a, a lady and, and her son uh, in one of the aisles, and uh, her son had grabbed uh, a can of uh, Pringles, and uh, her mom had asked him to, to put it back, and you know, he was being helpful. Uh, he puts it back, but what ends up happening is that he actually knocks down the entire aisle of Pringles. And I was like, that's why I never shop at Smart and Vinyl. <laughs> you know, as we get older, as we get older, we get less naive and more cynical. Disappointment and broken promises are the norm instead of hoping, dreaming, and trusting. But what little kids possess that adults and teenagers especially don't is their ability to ask for help. Several weeks ago, the, the, the Kato girls stayed over at our house during BBS week because their parents were in Japan. And so every morning, uh, I would park close to the entrance of church, like just right there. Uh, KK and CJ have already walked off and they're already approaching the entrance of the church. Um, and and as, as Kenna instinctively holds my hand. So I was like, oh man, that's, that's so cute. Um, anyway, uh, God routinely chooses to use the weak, the, the incapable, not the strong and the proud. Why? It's because the weak and the incapable are most likely to be the people who are able to see what is so astoundingly obvious. The analogy that David is using here is that you have to be dumber than a kid to not acknowledge the presence of God. Atheists can dress up the rebellion with a ton of philosophical and scientific reasons for why God doesn't exist. But at the end of the day, the ultimate reason why they don't is because they are willing, unwilling to confess and own up to their profound lostness. A God who uses babies and infants is the, God, is the kind of God who defies expectations. And what this tells us is that as much as the gift of God's name is an incredible invitation from God to access the very throne of his presence, at the same time, it means that it is an invitation that is on God's terms, not on ours. Which means that we can't manipulate God into doing what we want. We can't cajole him. 
I think some of us, when we go to church, try to pretend that our lives before coming to church is fine, but it's really not. For some of us, as we roll into church, we are leaving a heated argument with our parents. Maybe there's uh, some gossip, been some gossip about you at, at school. Maybe you've sinned against others. I think many of us, in theory, know that to become a Christian, we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to fix ourselves up. But when it comes to singing or praying, listening to messages, going to church, we just completely forget that. So that our coming to church is reduced to mere religiosity. We leave all of our, our burdens and sorrows, anxieties and worries at the door, pretending that everything is okay. But in reality, God actually invites us to bring our burdens, anxieties and worries with us as we worship him. And you know, I think for some of us, uh, some of us are simply going through the motions as we come to worship God, as we go to church. How we feel about going to church changes every Friday or Sunday. And you know, I, I'm glad that you come here, even if you don't feel like it, or your parents told you to, but maybe for some of you, you just completely fake it. You, know, you fake going to church, you fake it at home, and God knows when you fake, you're faking it but you never tell God that you're faking it. You know, in Matthew chapter 21, as Jesus enters the temple, children are coming up to him and crying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and scribes were mad and were asking Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus replies to them saying, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Same verse. Jesus is quoting this passage to the chief priests and scribes because the children were able to obviously see what the chief priests and scribes blatantly failed to see. It's the reason why Jesus says that unless you turn and become like children, you will never ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? It's because until you drop your pretense, until you drop your show, until you get over yourself and come to the end of yourself, and become like a simple, dependent child, you will not be able to see God for who he really is. And consequently, you will not be able to see yourself for who you really are. Because until you come to the end of yourself and become like a child, you will never believe that Jesus was actually Yahweh himself. And that he came to rescue you. That, that the baby in the manger, frail and weak, was actually Yahweh himself who entered into the stream of history to come for you. That the unchanging, eternal, self-existing, self-happy God entered into the flow of time to become a human being and to be given a new name, Jesus, and to rescue his people from their sins. That is the God who defies every single type of expectation. A God who becomes a man and to die for you and for me. A God who comes down from heaven and enters into the creation so that he can actually be with his creation. So maybe a few points of application is if God has actually really come, if the real eternal God came to be with you, that he has actually entered into time, space, and history to be with you, will the real you come to meet with the real God? If Jesus has come to bear your sins, do you think he has the power and authority to carry your scars? If God is the self-existing God who has created the galaxies, do you think he has the power and authority to carry your burdens and your sorrows? 
If you can't come to God with your overwhelmed life, if you can't come to God with your wandering heart, and if you can't come to God with your messiness, who else can you turn to, really? And in doing, in, in doing so, in bringing your real self to God, you can, actually have, actually, you can actually give him the opportunity to work on the real you, and you will slowly change. God invites us to come dirty because as we come near to him, he takes our dirtiness and we come out white as snow. That is the promise of coming to God clean. What the psalm shows and teaches us is that it moves us from actually talking accurately about God and actually moves us to talking authentically to God. We praise the name because his name reveals who he is. Secondly, we praise the name because his name reveals who we are. His name reveals who we are. Take a look at verses three to four. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You know, one of, the, uh, one of the, my first uh, strokes of insignificance was when I had gone on a mission trip to Kenya back in 2009. Uh, so that was a, a little more than 10 years ago. And during our mission trip in Kenya, we had uh, about a few days ago, uh, or uh, we had about a few days um, on, on a safari. And the safari was like in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and we were at least 100 miles away from uh, Kenya's capital, Nairobi. And, uh, and so we were just like in the middle of nowhere, this huge field. And on our first night there, there was no light pollution. Uh, there was no LA smog. There, there was nothing. It was just me sitting under the vast expanse of this huge open evening sky. And, and I, can, I, I, I just, I, I don't even know how to explain it really. That the stars were vivid and bright. Um, it, it was absolutely incredible. And for the first time in my life, I felt that my existence as a tiny and puny human being was just one drop of bucket in God's expansive world. Like I know in theory, I was just some scrub in God's you know, universe, but I really felt it as I was sitting on the porch in some field in the Kenyan landscape. But it was a strange feeling of insignificance because it was under the, this large canvas of the evening sky that I never actually felt more exhilarated and excited to be alive. You know, it reminds me of a quote that, that John Piper once said where he said, self-forgetfulness in the presence of greatness is the capstone of joy. Self-forgetfulness in the presence of greatness is the capstone of joy. And I can't help but think that this was probably how David felt as he was laying down in the field under the canopy of the night sky. The fact that he makes no reference to the sun indicates that it was most likely evening, uh, that spell binds him. Notice how David's describe, describe how the heavens were formed. He says, David tells us that the, the heavens are the work of his fingers. Notice which part of his anatomy formed the celestial bodies. Notice that he didn't mention the palm of his hand, but the tips of his fingers. God positions the galactic bodies with his fingers, not to mention the fact that David is completely aware of the reality that there are actually galaxies planets and moons beyond his naked eye. David has no idea that, that our earth is only one planet on a, on, a, on a relatively small solar system on the edge of one of the billion solar systems in this universe. Now, obviously, the, the language that David employs here is merely anthropomorphic. 
meaning that he is describing God with, with uh, human characteristics who obviously has no form or physical um, dimensions. But we can follow the logic of David's words, can't we? God is infinite, and we are but a drop in the vast universe. A drop in the vast universe. Now, what's his point? Why would God, possessing a majesty greater than the universe, pay any attention to you at all, to me, who by comparison seems so profoundly insignificant? Why should you, something smaller than a speck of dust on the light years of God's calendar, matter to him? Why? You see, Psalm 8 isn't a song of terror, but a song of wonder and amazement that points us to the wonder of the creator God who would be mindful of us and who would take thought of us. So David's question isn't really a question of curiosity so much as it is a a question of genuine amazement, wonder, and joy. You know what kind of wonder this is? It's the kind of wonder and amazement that Tim St. John displays when you take him to eat food that he's never had before. If you've never had a, a, a meal with Tim St. John, like, it's, it's, it, that's also hard to describe. Like, he just closes his eyes and he just, like, he's, like, just completely relishing in the food that he's eating. He just melts because it is, it's the look of sheer and pure delight. That is the kind of wonder that David expresses here. What is exactly, what is it exactly that David trips out on, though? Take a look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Psalm 8 is actually David's commentary on the opening pages of scripture in Genesis 1. What David is marveling at is is that despite the fact that the glorious and majestic God who is completely self-existent and independent, he shares with human beings his own image and bestows upon them his own glory and honor. But notice the language with which God shares and bestows this glory and honor. David says that we are crowned, crowned with glory and honor. You know, typically when you crown someone, you're actually, you're declaring that they're actually a king. To crown someone is to make someone king and queen. In other words, not only has God shared something of his own nature with the human race, glory and honor, he's also appointed them to a royal status. And there are two specific applications that I want to show you guys. Since God has showed his glory and honor with us, shared his glory and honor with us, it means that we have inestimable worth. And it means that we have been given a royal calling. The first is that we have inestimable worth. God's glory is seen everywhere in the night sky, in the creation of the world, in stars, trees, food. But God's glory is most clearly seen in one place, in the human race that has been created to reflect God's own likeness. God's glory is meant to be seen in you. Seen in you. You are a person of inestimable worth. As people who have been created in the image of God, we have been bestowed and given inestimable value. For all the sins that we experience, for all the ways in which the image of God in us is marred, we still bear God's stamp. And this is incredibly important because if we forget that we've been created in the image of God, bless you, we will either diminish humanity 
or we will deify humanity. You guys catch that? It's, in, it's important that we understand the, con- the context of our humanity in light of God's divinity. Because if we don't, we will either diminish humanity or deify humanity. What happens when you take God out of the equation? Humanity achieves autonomy, but in the process loses its dignity. And when, when humanity loses its dignity, you're left with nihilism, the idea that humanity is nothing, or you're left with humanism, that humanity is everything. Where nihilism is the ultimate expression of meaninglessness, and humanism is actually the ultimate expression of idolatry. Both are equally destructive lies. Therefore, any discussion of authentic humanity must begin with God rather than ourselves. The church father Irenaeus once wrote that the glory of God is the living man and the life of man is the vision of God. In God, we live, we move, and have our being. And this has so many implications for you guys because as high schoolers, one of the biggest struggles that high schoolers face is the question, what do others think of me? What do you think of me? Sometimes the thought of what others think of us is what will keep us up at night. It's what will get us out of our beds in the morning. It's what will motivate us to perform well on tests. It's what will motivate us to actually cloister away from other people. It's what will drive our spending habits, motivate all sorts of ungodly desires. And this is why it's important that we need to come to God as his children. Because we need to recognize and listen and trust that your worth is not determined by what others think of you, by your GPA, what schools you get into, what your parents think of you, what, but your, your worth is precisely determined by the God who is supreme over every other glory and that that God has given glory to you to share in, to participate in. If there is such a thing as biblical self-esteem, the image of God in you is the closest thing to it. But a healthy view of yourself is not developed by looking at how others are dressing or by convincing that you're, yourself that you're okay, or by fitting in with others even. A healthy view of yourself is developed when you look to the glorious, gracious God who has invested his own glory and shared his honor with you and has died on the cross for you. And the image of God in you, or the grace, upon, the grace of God upon your life, is not contingent on how well you felt today. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And that is true of you, whether or not you have a 5.0 GPA or a 2.0 GPA. That is true of you, whether or not you have a ton of acne or no acne at all. This is not the dignity determined by how popular or unpopular you are at school. This has nothing to do with how you look or athletic you are or whether you get married or not in the future. The point is that it is not a glory that you have achieved for yourself because the status that you have been given by God is only by grace. That is the good news of the gospel that even on our worst, God gives us his best. As an image bearer of God, no matter how marred the image of God is in you, you have a dignity and a worth that cannot be added but at the same time cannot ever be taken away. No one can take that away. And if this is true, does this have implications for how we treat one another? 
If God has invested his glory in the human race, it not only includes Christians, but non-Christians as well. The difficult people that you have difficulty loving in your life. The person who wronged you. The person who sinned against you. For all of their sin and their sorrows, they too bear the likeness of God. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes in um, his book, The Weight of Glory. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. There are no ordinary people, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The people that we hate on, the people that we judge, the people that we make fun of, C.S. Lewis reminds us, aren't just ordinary people. There are, they are image bearers of God who bear God's likeness. It's precisely the reason why we must be all the more earnest and willing to pursue lost image bearers of God. Not run from them. It's the reason why we ought to be kind and compassionate to those especially who aren't Christians. What the image of God in a human being means is that for all of a person's successes and failures, at the, end of, at the end of the day, they still bear the likeness of God. And so maybe some help for you guys is rather than focusing merely on the bad things in a person's life, because they're also bearing the image of God, can we look for the good as well? Are there good things to affirm in a non-Christian's life, in, a, in, in someone that annoys you? Is there anything in this person that is still honorable and just? Or are there still royal attributes of a non-Christian's life that we can imitate simply because they have been created in the image of God and bear also likewise his royal stamp? You know, I was reading a book called The Rise of Christianity written by uh, this guy named Rodney Stark and he was a sociologist, but the book examines how a small movement in Galilee of Jesus' followers ultimately transformed the Western world. And in his book, he noted that one of the reasons for Christianity's meteoric rise was because he had observed that Christianity was one of the reasons why Greco-Roman cities flourished. He writes, when cities were filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To, To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for, for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Now, this doesn't mean that Christianity was the exclusive religion religion that offered relief and aid. I'm sure there were other groups as well. But the point is that when there were humanitarian crises, Christianity answered the call. Do you know why? Actually, the, 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 the better question is, why not? How couldn't they when they followed and trusted a God who laid his life down for others? When despite their unbelief in the triune God, they still saw their their needs as more important than than themselves. Their needs as image bearers of God. You know, these are still issues that grip us today. We're talking about border control, talking about immigration. These are things that are happening in the 21st century. 
And I just wonder what the city of Torrance and what your schools will look like if Christian, Christians actually answer the call of Christian discipleship and seeing people as God sees them. People with inestimable, inestimable value, image bearers of God. Secondly, second application is that we have been given a royal calling. We've been given a royal calling. As people whom God has shared in his honor, glory, and likeness, we are a people who have been given a holy calling. Take a look at verses 6 to 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now David, again, is intentionally echoing Genesis 1. Now take a look back at Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, really quickly. I'm having you guys turn in your Bibles a lot. But Genesis 1, just put your finger back in Psalm 8 because we're going to turn back there. Psalm, uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, just three verses. Actually, no, yeah, three verses, okay. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have Again, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now that sounds familiar. God has given to you, image bearers of God, a kingly authority over all living things. The first glory that God gives you is an inestimable, inestimable worth, that, but, but, the, but the second glory and honor is that God has given to you the glory to rule, the glory to steward, the glory to manage. So as a human being, not only are you created with the rest of the created order, but as a human being, you are created as the apex and pinnacle of God's creative genius and activity. This is a status that is not even, that is, that is not even conferred to the divine counsel or even the angels. You have been given a royal calling to exercise lordship over every living thing under the lordship of Jesus himself. But my guess is that you guys don't have a farm to tend to when you guys back, get, get back home tonight. So what does it actually mean to rule over the creation? Well, when God makes man and woman in his image, the image is supposed to serve a purpose. An image is supposed to, to stand in the place of something as a representative. It is to image God to the rest of the world. It is to show the world what the rule and reign of God is supposed to look like as an image bearer of God. That is, what, that is your holy calling. You were to represent God in this world. As image bearers of God, we were actually considered idols of God. If you think about it, an idol is the physical manifestation of a divine being on earth, which is one of the reasons why God prohibits us from, from worshiping idols. Human beings are God's idols, statues, on earth. And as Christians, we are the living tabernacles of God in whom the Spirit dwells within us. And as people who have been given the royal task to rule and to reign over the creation, we are to be God's hands and feet 
over his creation. In other words, to rule over the creation is to actually represent God in the creation. To show what God is like to the world. As human beings, we, we, we are to partner with God. Re- ruling with him, reigning with him, sharing royalty with him. God's glory is seen in the world. The, the world is a theater of God's glory. And that glory is particularly seen in your life. So dear Christian, how are you living your life? as God's representative. Psalm 8 is a psalm on what it means to be truly and fully human. The glory of God's majestic name is to be seen in you. And this has so much bearing on our lives, doesn't it? How will we live our lives every day with this in our back pockets? If to rule with God is to represent God, how do you think this will impact how we go to school, how we do school, how we do friendships, how we do homework, how we spend our time with our friends? For some of you, your model in life is, I just want to get by. I just want to be be average in life. Is that something for someone who has been given kingly rulership? For some of you, your your model in life isn't mediocrity, mediocrity, but frenetic activity but is also at the same time, is frenetic activity the same as faithfully representing God to the whole world? The God who is never in a rush? The God who is never in a hurry? You are an image bearer of God, of the living God, and the primary manner in which this is expressed is by fulfilling your royal calling, whether that occurs as a student, a son, a daughter, a brother, a friend, a husband, a wife, whatever it is. But I suspect that for some of us, we are tempted to use rulership in the wrong way. It's exactly why there's so many problems in this world today. You know, like I was thinking about something that John MacArthur had said um, a while ago on this idea of being um, a ruler in the creation is that, you know, why not? Like you, you, are, you are God's uh, king and queen. You know, like, why don't you go shoot a deer, you know, like uh, eat a hamburger and, uh, and, you know, the rest will be fine. You are an image bearer of God. Of God. But I, that, if, if we actually carry our lives with that attitude, that is exactly the reason why the world is as it is. We use rulership in the wrong way. We mis- misrepresent God by looking down on others, by hating on others, by excluding others. We exalt ourselves over others rather than submitting to one another in love. Rather than using our role as image bearers of God to represent God by serving others, we serve ourselves And like Adam, our first father, we overstep our boundaries as rulers and fail to be the holy representatives God calls us to be. This is actually what it means to fall short the glory of God. Like people think that like, oh, you know, falling short the glory of God is like, oh, like like I I morally fail in this way. And that's obviously part of it. That the whole of it is actually that we have actually failed as human beings to rightly represent God to the world. That is what it means to fall short the glory of God. Every single being human being from Adam and beyond has failed to image God's loving rule. And facing the damnation and justice of God, God does the unthinkable. He lowers himself into the creation. And as a king, he takes on the role of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what his name is? It's Jesus. As the truest human being, as a new Adam, Jesus shows us what a true human being. Can someone close that door? 
Jesus shows us what a true human being is supposed to look like, to be like, what true rulership is supposed to be like. He ruled by serving, ruled by serving, ruled by thinking about other people. The rule by serving, the, the reign by dying. He is the one whom we were all meant to be like but failed to be like. But as the new Adam, thank you, by the way, Jesus launches a new creation and a new humanity, going back to a new version of Genesis 1 and restoring our image of God's, our image as, as God's image bearers. This is what Paul means when he says that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And I think people, some of us have like weird ideas of being conformed to the image of the son, like maybe being morally pure, perfect. perfect. Uh, that's part of it, but it's not the whole. As, as people who are conformed to the image of the son, we are actually being restored to God's original purpose, that the glory of God will be clearly seen through the followers of Jesus the Messiah, the true and better Adam, the perfect ideal human being. What is in a name? What's in a name? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is only when the name of Jesus is exalted that we can actually say at the end of verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. God, you are king. And wonder of all wonders, you share that role with us, that we are your vice regents and that you've given us a holy calling. We are given a worth that no one can take away. And God, I pray for these high schoolers here that they would see the value of this psalm in their lives, that it would really challenge them and shape them to be your representatives in this world. God, your world needs your people. Your people who, who need to be what they ought to be. And sometimes, God, we, we aren't. And so, God, we confess to you our sins. God, we confess to you our, our propensity to fail, time and time again, to fail to represent you. And yet, God, we are th- so thankful for the second Adam, the true and better Adam, who not only died for us, but also paved the way of a new way of being human. So, God, we thank you. We love you. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed.